In what circumstances are LNS not good observables for an electron and hydrogen atom? <coughs> in the presence of spin orbit coupling, they are not separately conserved. This occurs when the external magnetic field is much less than the internal magnetic field. Uh, I'm confused about the Zeeman effect. It sounds like when an atom is in a uniform magnetic field, it has different energy than when it is not than when it is not in the magnetic field. But then later in the paragraph, he refers to the Zeeman splitting. What is this? So putting it in the magnetic field does change the energy level, but it changes it differently depending on what the orb orbital and spin magnetic quantum numbers are. So it splits those degenerate levels. So in our first approximation, states with different values of L, M, and S, M all have the same energy. We put it in magnetic field, those states get different energies. So there's a splitting. So we can use perturbation theory. How hard is it to calculate the Zeeman effect for other particles? Would this be a useful thing to do? Uh, so <coughs> the other particles that you can set up so that they look they uh, look like hydrogen atom problems, you can replace the electron by a muon, or you can look at positron and electron. Those all have hydrogen-like states. And for that, you just have to change the masses. So it's easy to calculate. Um, you could think about trying to do it for quarks, but quarks don't have simple interactions, so they don't look like hydrogen atoms. Uh, does a good quantum number, so people have done that and they've measured it, I believe, for muonium and positronium. Does a good quantum number correspond to an energy with no degenerate states? Uh, <coughs> so, remember, the good states are the states that diagonalize the perturbation Hamiltonian. So, we can consider the good states in the limit that the perturbation vanishes, and those are states will be degenerate. Then when we turn on the perturbation, some of them will split off if, if the perturbation is actually doing uh, what we think it's going to do. Uh, in Wednesday's lecture, we referred to NZ as an operator, which up until then I understood as a constant. Doesn't a constant operator just multiply the wave function regardless of its value? <coughs> so for harmonic oscillator, we had lowering and raising operators. The occupation number an operator was a plus times a minus. So this lowers it, multiplies by root n, this raises it back up to where it was and multiplies by another root n. So this tells us the occupation number. <coughs> and in our three-dimensional example, we could do that in all three directions. So nz for a harmonic oscillator is an operator. Uh, I hope that's clear. Uh, how does the G factor affect the Zeeman effect? So uh, the G factor <coughs> is a factor multiplying the first order expectation value of the ham perturbation Hamiltonian. So the size of the shift in the energy is proportional to that G factor. Uh, in figure 612, the graph shows the Zeeman effect on the energy levels for the hydrogen atom from the weak to strong cases. How far apart are the energy levels that seem to be to asymptotically approach each other? So you guys all remember this complicated figure. So there was a 
eight that went down like this, and one that went up like this. And there are a bunch of other guys here. And there were two that looked like they approach each other. So if you look at the formulas, obviously <coughs> those two curves correspond to these formulas by inspection. And if we take the magnetic field, which <coughs> is hidden in this parameter beta, to be large, uh, we can factor out the beta squared from here. And then we'll have inside the square root 1 plus this over beta squared over 4. And then we can tailor expand the square root in this small quantity. And we'll see that this first term cancels that term. That's why they approach each other. And then over here, <coughs> this term has a gamma squared over beta squared, and this has gamma over beta. So for large beta, that's the leading effect. The other guy, there's another one that has a plus beta over 2 minus the square root. And inside, there's a plus instead of a minus in the next term. So doing the same thing, the first two terms, the first term cancels that term. And this minus sign, again, gives us a minus 4 thirds gamma over beta. So as the magnetic field gets very large, they approach each other, and this E2 minus 3 gamma is just a fine structure shift. Well, <coughs> it's not a fine structure shift. It's three times the fine structure shift. But they approach each other. How do we use the Klebsch-Gordon coefficients okay. to fill in the H matrix for the intermediate Zeeman effect? Can you work a quick example? Basically, how do we go from CG to a matrix? So I'm glad that everyone agrees that Klebsch-Gordon coefficients are extremely useful now that we've seen them in a real calculation. So all that we're doing, he was just picking, so he has a complicated perturbation and he can't think of a simple operator that automatically diagonalizes it. So what do we have to do then? We just have to pick a basis set, a basis set of states for the degenerate states in the absence of the perturbation and calculate the expectation value of the perturbation Hamiltonian between all pairs of those basis states. So calculate the matrix. So he chose as his basis states with definite values of J and JM. And he wrote those as linear combinations of uh, LM and SM states. So in terms of the garden coefficients. So this was just an arbitrary choice of basis. And then he calculated, he also had a radial wave function. So there's some n quantum numbers. Calculated. the matrix elements of the perturbation Hamiltonian for an arbitrary, between arbitrary states. So the ends are actually the same because it's degenerate. So given this and the radial wave function for that, the given n and l, then you can calculate that wave function and then take the expectation value of the perturbation Hamiltonian. And it's mostly easy because it just depends on L and S. 
feel the Zeeman effect is hard to visualize, is there a simpler example that it relates to? So we have a spinning charge in a magnetic field. The angular momentum of that spinning charge will tend to line up with the magnetic field or opposed to the magnetic field, depending on the sign of the charge. And if we have a charged particle moving around in a, in a circle in a magnetic field, the magnetic field is trying to force the angular momentum of that orbit to line up with the magnetic field. And so in our hydrogen atom, if we put it in a magnetic field, that magnetic field is trying to force the angular momentum to line up with the field. So that's all that's happening, and then it takes a little bit of uh, complicated mathematics to figure out what the shift in the energy level is. How many different <laughs> splittings can an electron in some energy level have? So we calculated that there were uh, n squared degenerate states when we first did the hydrogen atom. And we haven't included spin, so including spin up and spin down, there's another factor of two. So for the nth level, there's two n squared degenerate states. So if we put in a complicated enough perturbation, we can split them into two n squared different guys. What's the difference between HZ prime and HFS prime? <coughs> we have a chalk brush somewhere. <coughs> so the Zeeman perturbation is magnetic field times uh, <coughs> in the Z direction. structure piece is the relativistic correction plus the L dot S term. There's some coefficient here. What causes the internal magnetic field, which is responsible for this term? Proton has a charge, so it has an electric field. Electron is moving around it. So that means it sees a magnetic field <coughs> in its frame. How do we know how to, uh, now that we know how to horribly calculate Klebsch-Gordon coefficients by hand, can you teach us how to read the Klebsch-Gordon coefficients from the table? <laughs> um, I can't, because those tables are so complicated, they're much more complicated than actually calculating them. <coughs> but what I can do is on our webpage, since the beginning of the quarter, there's a thing that says Klebsch-Gordon Calculator. If you click on that, it gives you a Java program where you can enter whatever you want, J, J, M, L, S, whatever you know, and calculate what the unknown Klebsch-Gordon coefficient is. And then uh, I thought you guys were using that to check your homework. Can we have it No. It's just a study aid or <coughs> Once you're in graduate school, then you can use it. <coughs> Once you understand what the Koch-Gordon coefficients mean and how they're derived, then you can use that calculator.
tables are for the 20th century. No one uses tables anymore. <laughs> I don't see how the good quantum numbers change from N, L, J, and M, J when the fine structure dominates to N, L, M, L, and M, S when the Zeeman effect dominates. So when the fine structure dominates, then we can't use LM and SM because LZ and SZ don't commute with this Hamiltonian. Uh, but when the magnetic field dominates, then LZ and SZ do commute with this Hamiltonian. So we can use M and SM, or MS, depending on what you like to call it. Does that make sense? So I finally got the grades from the midterm. Here's the distribution. So very narrow bell curve, I guess. With long tail on one side, not in. We need 100 students to get good statistics. Uh, but that's what it looks like. So obviously it was a doable exam because there were people up at this end. Any thoughts? This is on the course webpage, so you can uh, study it. Down here at the bottom is where the electrocord and calculator has been hiding. But I don't think. Wireless doesn't actually work in this room. Okay. <coughs> so for the last two lectures, we've been trying to do this simple problem where we perturb a three-dimensional harmonic oscillator and keep running out of time. Um, so last time we diagonalized the 6 by 6 matrix, which was really just a 3 by 3, 2 by 2, and a 1 by 1. 1 by 1 was my favorite. <laughs> and we found the eigenvectors. So now we know what the good states are. Hamiltonian just messed around with the x and y uh, occupation numbers. It commuted with nz hat, the operator that tells us how many excitations there are in the z direction. So our good states have to be linear combinations with the same value of nz. So there were three states that have nz equal to zero. These linear combinations we found for the ones that are <coughs> eigenvectors of that perturbation matrix. Then there were there's two states with nz equal to one. And that's just symmetric and anti-symmetric linear combinations of those states. There was one state 
with NZ with the two. And it had nobody to play with, so it couldn't get mixed up. So the energy versus the perturbation plot. We're starting at seven halves h bar omega because we're looking at the second excited state, so it's two plus three halves. So we get pressure like this. So this guy went like, had a plus two V h bar omega instead of minus two V h bar omega. Instead plus V h bar omega minus V h bar omega. These two guys, their eigenvalues vanished. do the third excited state. But I'm going to let you guys do that in your spare time for fun. Do a good exam question. corrections and spin orbit corrections which go like alpha to the fourth and c squared. And there's a lamb shift. Alpha to the fifth and c squared. And there's a hyperfine correction. is alpha to the fourth and an extra factor of the reduced mass over the proton mass. So we're going to calculate these two. This one because uh, it's a good exercise in perturbation theory. This one because it's so much fun. And this one, you need quantum field theory to calculate. So in fact, people didn't really figure out quantum field theory, how to do quantum field theory correctly, until Lamb measured this. It's called Lamb because there was a guy named Lamb, not because it has to do with animals. So he measured this in the lab in the 40s and said, hey, you guys, people do quantum mechanics calculations. Your theory doesn't, isn't quite right because you haven't accounted for this effect. 
And then people were forced to seriously do quantum field theory and figure out how to calculate this. So that's another reason why people do these calculations. If you keep calculating and measuring to more and more accuracy, you might find something new. And then you can make some real progress. Aside from just having the fun of measuring and calculating to more and more decimal places. So the relativistic correction is the easiest one. You guys took relativity, right? But <laughs> so classically, kinetic energy is p squared over 2m. But in reality, kinetic energy is the square root of p squared c squared plus m squared c to the fourth minus mc squared which is the same as gamma mc squared minus mc squared. So for small p, which means non-relativistic, the momentum is small compared to the rest energy. Then we can expand this square root. term cancels. So the leading term is p squared over 2m. That was squared. So that the leading term is p squared over 2m. And then the next correction is p to the fourth over m cubed. squared degenerate states, so we'll diagonalize the 2n squared by 2n squared matrix. Or we'll realize that L squared, S squared, LZ and SC uh, commute with the Hamiltonian and the perturbation Hamiltonian. They have different eigenvalues, so those eigenstates are all orthogonal, and they must automatically diagonalize the perturbation Hamiltonian because they automatically diagonalize the perturbation Hamiltonian, we just can use non-degenerate perturbation theory. So the relativistic correction is just the expectation value of that correction. So we can take the constants out front. So we need the expectation value with the unperturbed wave functions of p to the fourth. And since p squared is Hermitian operator, that's the same as calculating p squared acting on each of the wave functions. And that's a good trick because p squared appears in the unperturbed Hamiltonian. So we know that that's just given by the energy minus the potential times 2n. And uh, we know 
n, we know what the energy is. So here, the potential is minus h bar c alpha over r. So we'll need an expectation value of 1 over r in a hydrogen wave function and 1 over r squared. You guys uh, are good at doing those things. That was one of the that was the easy question on the test. So one over R goes like one over N squared A, one over R squared goes like one over L plus a half N cubed, a squared. A has to have the same power because that's what's carrying the dimension. So we can plug these expectation values in for these potentials. Now, if we plug in what the Bohr radius is, h bar over alpha mc, then we see that this term is of order alpha to the fourth. There's an alpha squared times an alpha times an alpha, so alpha to the fourth. And uh, here's alpha squared, alpha squared. So all the terms are of order alpha to the fourth. So we can write everything in terms of our unperturbed energy squared.
So after some algebra, write it like this. These two terms have the same independence. This one has extra n over l plus a half. So this coefficient goes like alpha squared m the energy goes like alpha squared m so if we divide by mc squared we'll get alpha squared over 2n squared so this is roughly 2 over n squared times 10 to the minus 5 So our perturbation is a small perturbation, and this appears squared. Classically, if we had a negative charged particle orbiting around a positive charged particle, this guy would see a magnetic field. like R cross P. G sub E is the fudge factor. 
classically, you would have thought that G sub E was 1. In reality, G sub E is 2 plus alpha over pi plus corrections. More precisely, it's 2 times 1.0015965218, according to theory. <laughs> according to experiment, it's 2 times 1.0015965218015, plus or minus 7.6. This is another thing that to get all these decimal, well, the first few decimal places you can get from alpha over pi. To get the alpha over pi, you have to do a quantum field theory calculation, first order perturbation theory. To get to this many decimal places, I believe you have to go to fifth order perturbation theory. <coughs> and then, when you're done doing this, you can redo it for the muon, and it's a different number. And the mu one, one is actually measured more precisely. And people are hoping by measuring more precisely they can find out about particles that haven't been seen yet. But must be, if they contribute to this calcu calculation, you can measure their effect by measuring this, these things to enough decimal places. Hamiltonian from this the electron seeing the magnetic field due to its motion around the proton's electric field that's proportional to, proportional to L dot S and then there's another crazy correction it's actually G E minus 1. So if you didn't know any better and said that GE was 1, then you would have got approximately the right answer. So this is some relativistic correction called the Thomas precession. Has one. GE hmm? minus 1. The minus 1 is the Thomas precession correction. <laughs> so minus 1 is named after someone? <laughs> the fact that it's... <laughs> The fact that it's GE minus one is named after someone. <laughs> and since you guys took relativity already, you already know about this. No, we didn't. Well, it doesn't matter for us. But <laughs> uh, it has to do with the fact that an accelerated particle, relativistically, uh, if it's if you 
drag the particle <coughs> in a circle, you, you have to accelerate it to keep it in that circle. And as it's going around, its spin can persist because you're forcing it to follow this path, which wouldn't happen classically, but happens relativistically. For us, um, since this is about one up to the, to the order we're working in, this is one plus alpha over pi. But we're already going to get <coughs> four powers of alpha. So this is a, we don't have to worry about it. So writing that in terms of alpha, that's alpha h bar over 2m squared c r cubed, l.s. I don't like these formulas with epsilon naughts. So, now our perturbation Hamiltonian does not commute with L. Because L does not commute with L. Or at least different components of L don't commute with other components of L. And it doesn't commute with S. So we can't simultaneously look for eigenstates of the Hamiltonian and eigenstates of LZ and SZ. But if we look at the total angular momentum, that does commute. Also, J squared commutes with it. So we can look for eigenstates of E, L squared, S squared, J squared, and JZ. Now we worked out, yep. Um, if, a, if something commutates with the Hamiltonian, that means it's conserved, right? Yeah. Does that mean that? Is constantly changing from the angular, it's losing some angular orbital momentum and getting it to, to spin and going back and forth. Yes. Okay. They're processing in such a way that the total angular momentum is conserved. Okay. At least semi classically, that would be the interpretation. So we worked out what the <coughs> unperturbed wave functions were as eigenstates of. LZ and SZ, but we e can easily work out what these eigenstates are because we know about Klebsch-Gordon coefficients. They save us once again. So all we have to do is work out what the expectation value of L dot S is for these states and the one over R cubed. The one over R cubed is easy. The L dot S is easy too.
squared minus L squared minus S squared. 